Let me ask you a question. How many of you believe that we are to do what the Bible tells us to do? That's an easy one, hey? How many of you believe that the Bible tells us how we are to worship when we gather? How many of you have personally studied the scriptures to find out what that way or ways are? Not too many. So in other words, what we've done is simply come to church and to do what was always being done without any evaluation as to whether or not it was in keeping with the word of God. Is that true or false? If you're honest, should it be that way? Today we are going to look at a passage of scripture that tells us what to do when we worship. And we're going to see whether or not we've been obeying it, and if not, how we can do it, if we should. The book of Ephesians is a wonderful book. It's a tremendous book. Paul uses a method of teaching there that he uses throughout his writings. First, he lays down a principle, a divine principle. We would say first he teaches theology. He tells us something about God. And then he says, because that is true of God, because this spiritual principle is divinely mandated, then this is what you're supposed to do to manifest that truth in your life. In other words, he gives us a basis for what we are to do. Believe it or not, we tried to do everything that we do as a reflection of what we believe Scripture teaches. That's true. That's a commitment that I have to try to do everything according to the truth of the Word of God. Now, when you go to Ephesians chapter 4, through the end of the chapter, or at least until verse 4 of chapter 6, Paul gives us what I call the lifestyle of a spirit-filled believer. The lifestyle of a spirit-filled believer. In verse 1 of chapter 4, this is what I call the practical application now of what he had taught in the first three chapters shows us that we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. He tells us that we are the workmanship of God and so on. Some wonderful truths there. And then he says now in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, because of this, this is how we are to live. And he says we are to live worthy of our calling as Christians. In other words, our life must agree with our profession. Our walk must correspond to our talk. That's what Paul is saying. And the implication is, if you say you believe something, but you, do, then, but you don't live it, then you don't actually believe it at all. You're lying to yourself. That's the phrase that he uses. Deceiving ourselves is how James puts it. In verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4, 
He says we are to live in unity with one another. In verse 17, he begins the passage saying that we are to live differently than the unsaved. We are to be distinctly different from those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, he says we are to live a life of love. We are to lovingly live out the truth. And then in chapter 5, verses, 18 through 14, verses 8 through 14, he says we are to live as children of the light. We are to be the ones to reveal the truth to those who are in darkness. Not just by the words we say, but by the life that we live. But then he comes to verse 16, or verse 15 of chapter 5, and it goes all the way through verse 4 of chapter 6. He says that we are to live wisely by being spirit-filled. And that's the portion we're going to focus on today again. I say again because we focused on this several weeks ago when we talked about walking wisely and what it means to be spirit-filled. But in going over that passage, something struck me. Something stood out in a way it had not stood out before. So we want to go back to that passage. Now, in verses 15 through 17, and I hope you have your Bible open. We're just doing a survey, then we come to the verses. In verses 15 through 17, Paul speaks to us generally when he says we should live wisely by understanding the will of God. Notice what he says. Be careful then how you live. That's the command. The warning. Be careful how you live you live not as unwise but as wise this is just another way of saying live wisely puts it in the negative then he tells us how we are to do this by making the most of every opportunity I had the privilege of speaking the graduation service for the Christian Academy on um, Friday evening. And this is the focus I had here about buying up the opportunity, but we use the phrase, the Latin phrase, cope diem, seize the day. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Seize the moment, the opportunity to glorify God, to walk in the spirit, to walk wisely. And then he tells us why we are to walk wisely. Because the days are evil. And there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of opportunity to live wisely in evil days. In fact, that's the time that Christians really have the opportunity to shine as light when there's so much evil and corruption around. Buy up the opportunity, he says, because the days are evil. Now, he goes on to tell us exactly what he just said. He says, therefore, therefore, do not be foolish. He's just said that. He's repeated it. Why? Because this is his focus. He's saying if you do anything contrary to what I'm talking about now, you're going to be foolish. And God does not want you to be foolish. But the primary emphasis here is this. As we'll see, a spirit-filled person doesn't behave foolishly. 
a spirit-filled person does not behave foolishly. Therefore, do not be foolish. Now, but there's a contrast now. He's going to give you the opposite. He's going to say, this is what you should, this is, first he says, this is what you should not do. Now he's saying the opposite. This is what you should do. What should you do? Understand what the will of God is. Now that means that we can understand what the will of God is. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Sure. We're commanded to understand what the will of God is. And you don't have to go searching for it. You don't have to go for a full day of fasting for it. You could understand what the will of God is just by reading this passage of Scripture. Understand what the will of the Lord is. So now he becomes very specific, very precise, very clear. He says, do not get drunk with wine. That's not a spirit-filled Christian. No matter how many nice Christian songs a drunk person sings, that's not a spirit-filled Christian. Do not get drunk with wine. That's the opposite of being wise. That's a foolish thing to do. Why? It leads to debauchery. It leads to a riotous lifestyle. It leads, leads to a corrupt lifestyle. It le leads to an unruly, undisciplined lifestyle. Instead, now he's Again, Paul is very clear. He's very precise here. Don't do this. Do this. Instead, do what? Be filled with the Spirit. That's a positive command. Now, if God commands us to do something and we do not do it, what is it that we are doing? Sinning. So let me pause a minute. Are you right now being filled with the Spirit? If you cannot say no, you're disobeying the word of God. Not only that, you're being foolish and not wise. The Bible hurts sometimes, doesn't it? But that's exactly what he's saying. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, we dealt with this text before, so we won't go into it in detail because I want to focus on some of the results, because that's what Paul does next. He tells us, he shows us, he describes for us, he explains to us exactly what the evidence or the characteristics of a wise Christian are who has been filled with the Spirit. Notice what he says. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for God. Those are the characteristics of a wise, spirit-filled group of Christians as well as an individual. Notice 
the com notice the, 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 the main statements as it were. Speaking to one another, singing and making music, giving thanks to God, submitting to one another. Remember when we looked at it last time, we talked about the ING verbs. Here are the ING verbs, speaking, singing, making, giving, submitting. Those ING words describe the content of the command to be filled with the Spirit. That's what he's saying. But now here is the thing that struck me afresh and anew here when I read this passage. The first illustration Paul gives of a Spirit-filled church is related to music and singing. That's amazing to me. The first evidence that Paul gives of a spirit-filled person or a spirit-filled group of people is related to music and to singing. Now, that tells me that music and singing is an integral part of the church's life. It also tells me that singing and music is an integral means of developing Christian maturity in a church's life. Singing and music. To me, that blew my mind. Because I started to think about some of the singing and music I hear in churches. Is what I hear all spirit-filled music? Is what we do here the means of fostering spiritual maturity? You know, I read of a survey that was done in the United States. Looks like that's where they do all the surveys. Um, as you ask, what is the most popular music? Ask the church people that you have. Are you more concerned about? What is said in the hymn or the tune of the hymn? Guess what? The tune. Everybody. It's amazing. He said the only people who were concerned about the content were the preachers. But the people who do the singing, that was secondary. If the beat was right, the tune was right, the melody and all that kind of stuff. Now, why that struck such a note is because that is contrary to what these passages teach. And when I start to get that, it seems that we get more joy out of doing what the Bible cautions us to do rather than by getting joy out of doing what it tells us to do. So the emphasis, many is on joy connected to an emotional experience rather than joy connected to the truth of the Word of God. Now, there's another passage of Scripture that deals with this truth. It's what we call the... Uh, uh, 
parallel passage. It's in Colossians chapter 3. Let me read it for you. It's there on the screen. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, that's what came to mind when I heard those two girls last uh, Tuesday, first of all, and again this morning. That's how you, one way of how you allow the word of God to dwell richly in your heart by memorization, remembering it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, notice now, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Now notice this. You would say, boy, you're talking about the pastors, the preachers. Notice. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts together. That preaching and teaching comes when we sing to one another. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, let me go over quickly some of the principles that are derived from this passage in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 concerning singing and music and church growth, or spiritual growth, that is. Some principles. First of all, in verse 19, a spirit-filled spirit-filled music ministers spiritually to believers. Spirit-filled music ministers spiritually to believers. Notice the manner in which this is done. It says speaking. Colossians says singing. It's a means of communicating with words. I was going to say and music, but I got to be careful how I say and music because there are many who give a very strong, strong, strong thesis to show that musical instruments were not used in the early church at all. They give strong emphasis on that. And they do have, they do have a, 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 a basis for saying that. The only way we can say that it is a basis for it is to we bring it over from the Old Testament. Because there's nowhere in the New Testament you have any idea, any reference to music in the churches, especially New Testament churches. Except, and this is where some go, and I used to go here, but I'm wavering. Uh, the word psalm literally means a song accompanied with a musical instrument. They would say, well, that's the way it was used until the New Testament time. And then it simply made a song of praise or a song. Well, you know, I like music. So I had to go back to the scriptures to see if there's anywhere we have musical hymns in the New Testament to worship. And you know where I found it? Book of Revelation. Worship around the throne. And they had harps. And that saved the day for me. <laughs> All right, that saved the day for me. Because I said, well, if we could do it on the, in the throne, around the throne in heaven. And by the way, that's a picture of us. That's what we can be doing. That was us, you see. I guess we could do it here anyway. All right. 
But the word simply means, when it says psalm, it means singing psalms or singing praises. In other words, singing and music have been a part of Christian worship since the very beginning. It's a part and parcel of Christian growth and ministry. ministry. That's what these passages seem to be saying. But now notice the subjects, or the objects, depends on how you look at it. It says to sing to one another. It doesn't say come up here and I was going to say, I sing, but I better don't say that. And someone sings to you, and you just give it to me. The idea is here, I sing to you, and you sing to me. You see, this is where I started to think about how we are to grow. Through music and through singing. Some have suggested that this is antiphonal singing, where we respond to one another, but using the same words. Uh, well, not necessarily, but uh, I think Anton would call it where we echo back to one another. You know, we have some of that, don't we? Uh, somebody sings this and one will echo it back. In fact, I think that what was happening in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the angels and the cherubim, and they were singing, holy, holy, holy. I believe it's antiphonal. They were singing back and forth. They were echoing that. But that seems to be one of the ways in which it was done in the early church. Another way is responsively. In other words, we will sing a portion of the scriptures or whatever song it is, and then somebody else would sing the other passage. We sort of speaking one another. This is the idea that seems to be given in this text. The idea of choirs, the idea of soloists is not reflected in this text unless there's response from the audience. Now, some of what we call the higher churches have brought this forth in a way where we have the priest or the pastor, whoever it is, would come up and they'd read a passage and then the congregation respond in unison, glory be to God, or amen, or so be it. You have that kind of response. This is the thing he's talking about, but not in that kind of a fashion. It has the idea we were actually teaching, instructing, and even admonishing one another. And so I said, now, does this reflect in any way what we do here at Calvary Bible Church? Have we missed the boat in not providing more opportunity for our people to respond to one another in psalms, songs and spiritual songs, hymns and spiritual songs? And I'm looking into this now because you see, how I read this text is that this manner of speaking to one another through this music is vital to spiritual growth. That means if we're not doing it, we're not utilizing one of the major means for spiritual growth that God has given us. You see what I'm saying? And so now me and Anthon, we've got to be looking at this and see how we can apply it in our gathering. And not only here, but whenever we meet, many churches, Bible classes, whatever it is, I think somehow, and this is my point, we've lost 
some of the means that God has given us that fosters spiritual growth. And we need to bring it back. But now look at here. He talks about Psalms. In context, and all students agree with this, this refers to the Old Testament Psalter, the book of Psalms. This is used primarily by the early church. The book of Psalms is what the early church used for their singing. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul says, what should you do then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a what? Psalm. Some translation says a song. The high idea people come with a song to sing, something to do, you see. He says, let all these things be done for the strengthening of the church. For the strengthening of the church. For the edification of the church. For the building up of the church. That means, if it is true that the way the early church sang, according to these passages, is some responsive way, if we're not doing it, then we're not being edified the way we should. James 5.13, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Now this is an interesting one. Is any merry? Let him do what? Let him sing psalms. In other words, you have the association of joy with your singing. Remember, this is why I started to look at this, because last time we talked about the need for joy in our Christian expression, in our Christian experience. And he says, if you are merry, then sing psalms. Now that means sing the word of God. See? Sing the truth. The Psalms were normally sung with a stringed instrument, as I mentioned. Psalm 59 says, this is, if you look at Psalm 59, 60, 62, and others, this is what you'll see some of the heading. For the choir director. And then you'll see something like this. Set to Al Tash F. A micked ham of David. You see them in a lot of songs. What does that mean? Well, basically, we don't know. That's true. We, we don't know what that mikatam means. But most people think it means a meditation, a thought, a song of David. In other words, this instructions was given to the choir director to sing this particular song, and then sometimes they would give a tune to, for, to which it is to be sung. The point is, music had a vital role in the Old Testament gathering of God's people, and it is carried over into the New Testament as well. There are some hymns mentioned in the scripture. For instance, in verse 14 of our passage, it may have been a hymn. It says, for everything made evident is light. And for this reason, it says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Scholars believe that's a hymn. And we have several others in the New Testament. But that was a hymn that was sung in the church. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, as well as in Mark chapter 14, verse 26, hymns were sung during the Lord's Supper. It says, after singing a hymn, they went out. And so around the Lord's table, table, hymns were sung as well. There are a group of songs called Hallel Psalms. 
Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. This was sung during the meal of the last Passover, and the believers took some of those songs in the celebration of the Lord's Supper as well. Psalm 113 and 114 were sung just before the second cup in the Passover. Psalm 115 and 18 was sung at the end of the meal, and so on. And in some sense, we do that same thing here with the observance of the Lord's Supper. We sing certain hymns before, we sing certain hymns after. And so in one sense, we are following in this tradition, and it's taken from the Jewish way of worship during the Passover, you see. Then it talks about spiritual songs. By the way, let me say this concerning the hymns. The hymns uh, seems to be songs that are directed more toward God. In other words, the hymns seem to be songs that were reflective of the character and the work of God, especially the character of God. And some scholars would say that's therefore hymns should always be uh, uh, vertical. Hymns are what we sing to God. Spiritual songs, as we talk about in a moment, horizontal, that's what we sing to one another. And that's where we have a difference between worship and praise. Now, this is some very narrow, fine definitions here, but some would say worship only has to do when we direct our songs toward God and only talk about Him. Spiritual songs, praise, has to do when we talk about what God is doing in our lives. And that's the, def that's the difference we make here. But sir, spiritual songs... The Greek word for spiritual here is pneumatikai, is the same word when we talk about spiritual gifts. So these spiritual songs has to do with some spiritual element in it that causes the benefit of the, the person to whom it is being sung. Because spiritual gifts are given for the benefit of the body of Christ, not for the person who does, who has the gift, primarily. It's for someone else. You understand what I'm saying? So spiritual songs, then, are directed more towards a building people rather than satisfying the person who's doing the singing. That's the idea, because spiritual gifts are for the benefit of the body primarily, not only for the person who has the gift. Paul talks about a song given by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 14, 15. He says, I sing in the Spirit. I also speak in the Spirit. It talks about something given by the Spirit. Basically, the idea is that he's talking about songs when he talks about spiritual songs, are songs that are not secular, that are not fleshly, that are not carnal, that are not worldly. You cannot have something that is spiritual if it's worldly on the good side. You cannot have something that is positive spiritually if it is carnal. You cannot have something positively spiritually if it's fleshly. Or if it's secular, that's what he's saying. Now you see the problem that uh, brings about for us today. We have such a mixture in our churches today. We have some churches that all of the beginning services, all it is is secular music. We have Christians who are crossing over now. They start off in the church and they're so good, they go into the world, as we say, and they become secular. And they're doing it all for the glory of God, they say. Tonight we're going to talk about how to evaluate whether music, songs are spirit-filled or not. There are some ways of doing that. 
What is the content? Look at Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the way you do it is by singing it to one another. It's the word of God. By the way, this is one of the basic ways by which we determine what is spiritual and what is not. Does it contain or reflect the word of God? If it doesn't, it is not spirit-filled. Clear, simple, black and white as that. You could argue, you could do everything you want. But according to text, if it doesn't have the word of God, if the content is not based or reflects the word of God, it cannot be spirit-filled. Spirit-filled singing, spirit-filled songs are filled with the word of God. The same way those who are singing it, if they are spirit-filled, they are filled with the spirit of God. It is the word of God, not the poetry of man that builds up the body of Christ. No, good, no matter how good it sounds. Now, why is this important? Well... Let me take the singing and the songs and put it into context of preaching and teaching. Normally we think of preaching and teaching as coming from the pastor or the pastor teacher. But what I want to impress upon those who are in the music ministry, when you sing, when you play your instrument, you're doing the same thing. You're preaching, you're teaching, you're admonishing. Look at this passage of scripture and I'm going to add to scripture. I'm going to substitute some words to make a point. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound music. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of singers to sing what the itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to music with beef, but no truth. If we substitute those words, we're living in those days. And unfortunately, many of us right here are buying into it. What's the purpose? Colossians 3.16, teaching, admonishing one another. This is the same purpose for teaching. That's why it's important for us to know what we're singing. I want you to take your living hymns for a moment. And I want you to show you how we can sing error while we do it for the glory of God. Turn in your hymn, to, hymn books to number 186. I don't have time to go through too many more of these, but 186. Look at stanza three. He left his father's throne. This is a beautiful song, by the way. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love. That's a lie. Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. According to this passage, the only thing he didn't empty himself of was love. That's an error. And we sing it. And we could derive a biblical doctrine from that. That's a big thing. Here's another one. Look at hymn number 13. 
verse 3 again. Verse 3 comes up. Hey. Crown him the Lord of life. Again, all these are nice hymns. Who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife. Notice what's the next words. For those he came to save. Now you see, if you know theology, that's a very ambiguous statement. Because it could be teaching what is called limited atonement. What is limited atonement? Jesus only died for the elect. He did not die for all mankind. That's a theological uh, problem you have to deal with. One more. Go to 204. Now, by the way, only, I only use this hymn book because this is what we have. I could pick up almost any hymn book and we could find this. All right? Look at, I don't believe this. Look at verse 3 again. <laughs> While hosts cry Hosanna from heaven descending with glorified saints and the angels attending. What you have here is Jesus coming from heaven with the saints in the context of the rapture. You see what I'm saying? That's not true. Jesus isn't coming with this host until the end of the millennium. Not before. What am I saying? I'm saying that we can sing error. We can teach error by the hymns we sing. But we can also teach truth. See the point? We can also teach truth. That's why we must be sure that we evaluate what we're singing. You will see many times Anton will switch a couple of words in the song. Why? Because we've gone over it and hey, it doesn't reflect truth. And so we change it. Now, sometimes you can get in trouble with that with, with our copyright. But anyway, we, we do that here anyway. All right. Now, the point is this. Spirit-filled singing and music are meant to teach, to edify, and to admonish God's people. It's not meant to entertain, to titillate, or tickle their ears. It's meant to glorify God. Friends, it's the content, not the tune, is what edifies. Now, are you saying that I don't like tune, uh, good tunes and tapping? No, I love it. But just make sure we tap in the truth. You understand what I'm saying? Just more before we enjoying the truth. And then he said, spirit-filled music glorifies God. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all to the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Then, Paul tells in Colossians 3.15, it is to be done in an atmosphere of peace, that is, singing to one another. Let the peace of Christ be in control of your heart. Well, you were in fact called as one body to this peace and be thankful. In other words, God says, hey, now, when we're talking about this kind of a singing, God calls his people to live at peace. The word rules here means to be or act as an empire, one who sees that everything is kept calm and tranquil, one who keeps others from causing commotion or unrest, and that rules are kept and followed. That's why, and let me say this is very practical, to choir members, to praise team, to the sunbeams, to all of them. 
If you're fighting out there and arguing with one another there while you practice and everything, and you come out here to sing, you're not spirit-filled. The peace of God is not ruling in your heart. And God's spirit cannot then bring about edification. Peace of God must rule in your hearts. It's talking about the people who are doing the singing. So don't think that you could fight and argue and how all kinds of commotion going on in one another, and then you come out here and you sing for the glory of God. Mm-mm. Don't work that way. That's not spirit-filled singing. That's not spirit-filled music. It is to be done with a joyful attitude, singing and making melody with your heart. Making melody with your heart. That's for the joy. That's where the foot-tapping stuff comes in. Our hearts must be in tune with the words and message of the hymns and songs, not just our lips mouthing the words without our hearts feeling the truth they convey. So much here. It is to be done with a thankful spirit, always giving thanks in all things. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It is to be done as to the Lord. He says... This is, where the, this is where the vertical aspects comes in. Not only singing to one another for edification, but singing to him for worship. You see, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, 15, that singing is a spiritual sacrifice that we offer to God as praise. The fruit of our lips. It's a spiritual sacrifice. Now you see, that puts a whole new dimension on singing, doesn't it? And what we do. God is there, the great God, omnipotent, powerful God, the holy God, the one who's seeking those who'd worship him in spirit and truth. We've come together, and now he's waiting, as it were, to be worshipped by those who have clean hands and pure hearts and not fighting with one another. He's waiting. He's waiting for what? He's waiting for us to offer to him the fruit of our lips. It's a spiritual sacrifice. God sees us as priests, not as entertainers. Do you understand it? What we have to be concerned about when we leave here is not whether or not we enjoyed it, whether or not God accepted what we did. Do you know, in the Old Testament, God even told some of the people, and they had a big praise team. They had a big choir. God says, shut the door. Away. Away with your singing. Away with your musical instruments. Away with it. Why? Because your heart is far away from me. You come with words on your lips, but your, wo- your heart is far from me. Away, away. I don't want it. Music, singing, is important to God. It should be to us. As someone has said before, see love, think, and act on these things.